How's everybody doing? Good, good. So um, I'm told that I'm supposed to start, so why don't we pray and we'll get into the book of Job. God, thank you that you are so much bigger than us and you know so much more than us and you are uh, just so grand and awesome. Lord, we thank you for uh, the, the lesson of the book of Job. We, we know that you took Job the man uh, and his family through so much and yet through that part of what you've done is you've delivered to us just this, this beautiful uh, teaching for us to take in and to know you more deeply, and I pray that we would. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd bless these ladies. I just thank you so much for them. And uh, Lord, help us to understand and to know you deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Um, so, thanks for, for letting me come to women's group today. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. If you have a Bible with you, that's going to be helpful. If you don't, um, then it would be helpful if you did, uh, because we're, we're, what, what I was asked to do today is to talk about the book of Job, which is 42 chapters long, and so I can't possibly read the whole thing aloud today. That would take much more time than we have, so we're going to kind of just skip around and look at a couple of parts here and there and try to, to understand uh, the message of the book of Job. Of course, this, this book that's so famous for having to do with, uh, with suffering and unexplained and unexplainable <laughs> suffering. Um, now we know, at least at this church, we know that the, what's, what's commonly called the prosperity gospel is flawed. And often you will see these people on TV who will tell you if you will just send in this much seed money and have this much faith, then things are going to turn around for you. And uh, it, it's a sad thing, but I want you to know that it's not a new thing. Uh, I think sometimes we speak of the prosperity gospel as though nobody started thinking that way until like the 1950s or until television became a medium or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's something that is an old mistake, and it's a mistake that wells up from all of our hearts and even us who think to ourselves, well, I would never follow a prosperity preacher. I would never follow prosperity theology. We still have this mind in ourselves that we have to actively um, root out that says, but if I do good things, God ought to treat me better. Uh, and if I do bad things, then I guess that uh, you know, it's, it's just like this sense of, of karma almost, right? Which is not a Christian concept. But it's, it's actually easy to, uh, to read much of the Bible in such a way that, uh, that you could come away from it, and if you're misreading it, you could have a prosperity way of thinking of certain parts of that Bible. Um, so just, just one of the examples of that, uh, if you take God's words about blessing the nation of Israel and apply them as though they were promises to you as an individual then you're going to come away with a prosperity gospel way of thinking. Let me give you an example of this. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 4, God says, through Moses, to the people of Israel, if you, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. And that's just the beginning of how he describes those blessings. And that's what's called the blesses, blessings for obedience within the covenant with, uh, with Israel. And then he goes on and he describes later in that chapter curses for disobedience as well. But if you were to take that, which is the true, true statement that God has given to the nation of Israel, and we actually see it played out in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, but if you take that and you say, that is a personal promise for me, that's just not what the Bible is saying. It's not saying every individual personally who obeys God carefully will therefore be blessed in the city and blessed in the field and have blessed fruit of the womb and blessed cattle and all of those things. Uh, it's, it's simply not the case, but it's a common misreading of the Bible. Uh, a second misreading that you could come away from the Bible and get a prosperity way of thinking is uh, if you take the wise Proverbs of the Bible and, uh, and take them as being unbreakable personal promises rather than as being general principles. All right, so let me give you an example of that. Proverbs, th- this is not, I didn't like spend a long time picking out which proverb to give you as, as an example because you can see this all over the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Okay. Now these are general principles. That's why they're in the Bible. It is a general principle that uh, if, if you are going about life in such a way as to walk in wickedness and find ways to hide yourself in order to maintain that wickedness, and if, if you are going about life in a way that is in open, uh, conscious rebellion against the law of God, it's going to be the case that things tend not to go as well for you as they would if you were seeking to walk according to the law of God. God is the one who ordered the world, who set up the world as, as he would have it to be, who wrote his law on every human heart in the form of a conscience. Of course, that conscience is... Uh, marred and twisted because it's a sinful heart that it got written on, right? But, um, but he ordered the world, and it makes sense, and it's here in Proverbs for us to see that as a general principle, things are going to go better if you walk according to God's rules than if you rebel against God's rules. But at the same time, um, that's the, the intention of the book of Proverbs and the other wisdom literature is not to tell you um, if I have sought to walk according to God's law, then I will be blessed. If, if I, I am not concealing my transgressions, then I will prosper. If I am fearing the Lord always, then I will be blessed. And, and uh, if I'm not hardening my heart, then I won't fall into calamity. You, you, that's not the point of that. Another example that's just, uh, you, you need to know this. Uh, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that is a general truth. And yet there are children who have been trained up in the way that they should go who have departed from it. Um, so, so Proverbs is not given to us uh, as, as a hard and fast, everything in here is a promise. It is, this is the general way that God has ordered the world. Now what we're going to see in the book of Job, and Job is a wisdom book like Proverbs, uh, the book of Job is an example to us, spread across 42 chapters, uh, 
that you cannot take those general sayings uh, about um, walking uprightly and being blessed and say, therefore, that must be the case for every individual. But it's not, it's not just that. Um, it, it is also something that tells us much, much greater truths. We're going to see in, in Job's life that even as he was walking uprightly, um, that he was faced with calamity. The kind of calamity uh, that is, is said in Proverbs 28.14 that comes upon those whose hearts are hard, even though Job's wasn't. And this was the mistake of Job's friends, as they thought, well, he must be concealing his transgressions, he must be up to something, he must really be evil. But that's, it's, it's not the case. Let, let me give you some real-world examples, too, because we're going to see Job, but I know that most of the time when people look at the book of Job, I mean, t- generally, the time in a Christian's life when they're most drawn to Job is when they're most hurting. And when they're thinking to themselves, why is this? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to deal with this? Or maybe not even themselves, but somebody very close to them going through something really hard. And, and uh, I, I, want you, I want to just give you three examples of, of uh, people that, that I've known. I realized all three of these are, are people who were from our church in, in Colorado before we moved here. Um, example number one, a woman who was a godly woman, walking with the Lord, studying her Bible, seeking to raise her children according to the ways of the Lord. Her husband decides to leave her for another woman. And in the the course of that ugly process, she gave notification to uh, people in the church that she feared for her life. And uh, just before the divorce was finalized, she went out to walk her dog, and nobody ever saw her again. And still no one has ever seen her again. Nobody has ever found a body. Nobody has ever found anything Um, The police never found enough evidence to charge anybody with a murder. Um, But here you are, and you say, why would this happen to this godly woman and her family? Why would that be? Uh, another, Another example, another godly woman who was married to a man who we all thought was a godly man, seeking after the Lord, teaching Bible studies, all kinds of stuff like that, and and then he decides to leave his family to pursue a homosexual relationship and a feeling of his own sense of identity trumping so much else in his life. And she's left on her own with two kids, uh, one of whom has special needs. She's working full-time. She's working on a college degree at the same time. And you just say, why? Why did this happen to her? Um, another one, our senior pastor there, godly, faithful pastor of a thriving church, he started to notice strange feelings in his body, started to have this weird drool coming out of the corner of his mouth, didn't know what was going on. After several tests, he was diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, and he began a a slow and painful decline from there. And after a couple of years, he wasn't able to preach standing up anymore. And not long after that, he wasn't able to preach anymore at all. And he stopped taking his heart medication because it would have been better to die of a heart attack than to go through what he was facing with his lungs giving out. But that wasn't God's will. He, he went through that slow and painful death. And I mean, he's with Jesus now. <laughs> he doesn't mind now. 
But you look at that and you wonder, why would that happen? Why would that happen to Pastor Bobby? And so we, we come to this, and we know this from our own lives, but it's good to just be reminded of this and refresh. Sometimes faithful saints of the Lord suffer in ways that we can't explain. And consider Jesus. All right, I want you to consider Jesus before I even read you any verses out of the book of Job. Was Jesus faithful? Did Jesus have any reason in his life why God ought to punish him? But it says about Jesus in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so uh, we ought to know if we're following a Savior who was literally perfect, and he walked in suffering, and suffering all the way to the point of death on a cross, then uh, it ought not to surprise us that godly people suffer. But even as we know that, we kind of still want to know why. We want to know why. Why is this happening? And so that's part of what we see with the book of Job. I, I want to I, I just tell you up front, Job never gets to find out the reason for his suffering. Or if he does, it's not recorded for us in the book of Job that he ever got to find out. He wants to know. His friends want to know. They all speculate. They all have reasons. They all throw their hands in the air not knowing why. And God just doesn't tell them. And he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. But he gives us a hint at the beginning that there's something much bigger than Job going on here. So the book of Job... You kind of wonder, well, if, if, I, if I just ask you, who is the book of Job about? What would you say? Job. Job. God. 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 <laughs> Both of those answers are true, but I like the second one best. Um, so the book of Job is about God. And that's kind of the point of the book of Job, too, is that by the time you get to the end, I'm telling you the end up front, um, that the point is that it is not about Job, that it's about God. And this carries over into our observation of suffering and difficulty in the lives of godly people and just suffering in the world in general for us to know this is, this is about God. And God's purposes are not known to us. They're known to God. So the book of Job is about God. Uh, Job was written at some point in Israel's history. All right. Does that sound good? <laughs> there are people who think that it was uh, the first or maybe one of the first books that were written. There are people who think that it was the last or one of the last books that was written. Uh, we don't know when it was written. We don't know who uh, this, this prophet of the Lord was that God used to, to write this. Uh, but we do know a, a little bit about Job the man. Uh, and it seems that he lived around the time of the patriarchs, around the time of Abraham, somewhere in that time frame. It says that he lived in the land of Uz, which was, uh, seems to have been off to the east of uh, uh, where, where you picture Israel on the map. And uh, his name was Job. And we're told up front about this man, uh, Job, Job 1.1. He was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. All right. Now, this doesn't mean 
that Job had no sin. All right? this, is, this is a way of speaking to people. It's kind of like how uh, when, when the New Testament says that, um, that someone who seeks the office of elder must be above reproach. It uh, doesn't mean has to be a sinless human being or else nobody could do it. <laughs> but it's, it's that kind of an idea. He was an upright man. Uh, he feared the Lord. He turned away from evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job had that. He wanted to serve God. He did not want to do what was evil. And he was prospering. It says there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, if we had lived in his day, we would say, that is extremely impressive. Look at how many sheep he has. Uh, We don't quite measure wealth in the same uh, way today, but he, uh, he was prospering, prospering. And he had 10 kids, which is a blessing, all right? If you want 10 kids, that's a blessing, all right? So uh, it says his, uh, it, it speaks of the, the feasts that his children would have, but we are given some insight up front about what's happening in heaven. Insight that never gets told to Job. And so it says in verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God, just meaning um, spiritual angelic beings, uh, when they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The word Satan means accuser. He was coming into God's court as a prosecutor, seeking somebody to charge with wrongdoing. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Which he still does, seeking someone to devour like a roaring lion, right? Uh, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That's interesting, isn't it? God brings up Job to Satan. Satan goes in as the prosecutor, as the accuser, and God brings up Job. What it, God's goal here is to demonstrate His glory. All right? God is going to demonstrate His glory. He doesn't need Satan to bring up anybody to Him. He says, I think I'm going to demonstrate my glory in front of the face of Satan the accuser, and all the angelic beings with this man, Job. God is the one who initiates this. But Satan says to him, or excuse me, God, God says, Consider my servant Job, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, uh, said, does, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then after that, um, Job loses his children. They're killed. He loses all of his wealth, his possessions. Um, he, He goes from having everything to having nothing. And he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says, In all this Job did not charge God with wrong. Now, Satan's not satisfied with that. And so Satan goes back to the Lord, and Satan 
says, uh, the, the Lord brings up Job again <laughs> in chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? And verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job, Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. All right. So immediately after that, his wife comes up to him and tells him to curse God and die. And he doesn't do that, but he doesn't quite turn in, in the same voice of praise that he did the first time. And so, uh, so you get to the, the meat of the book of Job after that. So we've had here an introduction of Job, and then this big view that we as the readers get, that Job doesn't get, of here's what's going on in heaven. And then we zoom back down into the small, little bitty Job's life for most of the rest of the book. All right? Uh, so... So when we zoom back in on Job, you get three cycles uh, that happen here. You, you've got Job sitting down uh, with his friends. They sit there for, uh, I believe, a week. Yeah, seven days and seven nights. Nobody says anything. Which I, I kind of wish that Job's friends had just stuck with that. <laughs> Sometimes that's better, right? And in the New Testament, it says weep with those who weep, right? Um, sometimes if you open your mouth to give somebody a great answer in the middle of their suffering, uh, it's, it's not any more helpful than what Job's friends are about to offer. Sometimes you just need to weep with those who weep and sit there in silence, and it's okay. Uh, and he says, after a week, Job was the first one to open his mouth. And chapter 3 is Job, it says, cursing the day of his birth. He's, he's saying, I don't... I would have been better off if I had never been born. That's, that's the gist of chapter 3. And then you get to the three cycles that I mentioned. Starting in chapter 4, what you have is a friend speaking, Job answering, a friend speaking, Job answering, a friend speaking, Job answering. So there's three friends, and that happens three times. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the, uh, the, the, the gist of what these guys are getting at uh, can kind of be summed up with, uh, with what Eliphaz says in chapter 4, verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Right. So Eliphaz and his other two friends as well, their main point to Job is, come on, man. There's got to be something in your life that has brought this upon you. It might not have been something that we can see on the outside, but you've got to be hiding something somewhere. Maybe it's something you're not even aware of, but Job, you better search your heart because there has to be some reason in you why God has brought all of this calamity upon you. Uh, His friends are sitting there in front of this mourning, weeping man who's lost everything and saying, it's your fault. And Job, every time he answers, he, he essentially says, no, you're wrong. So if you just look at the, the headings of the chapters, you've got chapter 4, 
Eliphaz speaks, the innocent prosper. That's, that's the gist of it. And then you get to chapter 6, Job replies, my complaint is just. And, uh, and then you get to chapter 8, um, the summary on my, my ESV Bible here is Bildad speaks that Job should repent. And then chapter 9, Job says, there is no arbiter. He's saying, I need a go-between between me and God. I'll mention that again later, but I just don't have one. And he pleads to God. And then Zophar speaks. My, cha- my chapter 11 heading is, you deserve worse. <laughs> Great message there, Zophar. Um, and, and Job replies, the Lord has done this. Okay, so you've had all three friends take a turn, and Job has answered all of them. And then all three friends, starting in chapter 15, take a turn that's a little bit harsher than the first time. Uh, Eliphaz accuses Job of not fearing God. Um, chapter 16, Job replies, miserable comforters are you. <laughs> Bildad in chapter 18 says, God punishes who? The wicked. You must be among the wicked. Uh, Job replies in chapter 19, one of the most beautiful things that you'll find in there about his Redeemer living. He says in uh, 1925, great answer to Bildad, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is a statement of the Redeemer, Jesus, who, uh, who is a Redeemer who lives, who has died and risen from the dead, and who has secured our resurrection, so that Job can say and speak in truth, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So that's a good answer. But Zophar then speaks up and says, well, the wicked will suffer. And Job replies in chapter 21, the wicked do prosper. Look, you can see wicked people prospering all over the place. How, how, how does this work? And then Eliphaz speaks again. Job replies. Bildad speaks again. By the way, Eliphaz in, in chapter 22 is probably the harshest this, that this gets. Uh, he is just tearing down Job so hard here. Uh, Eliphaz's third turn. Um, and then uh, you've got Eliphaz, you've got Bildad takes another turn. Zophar does not take his third turn. I don't know why. Uh, but, but Job goes on and he speaks for a while. Um, I have to say about the book of Job, when you quote a verse from the book of Job as, as your um, proof text for something that is true from the Bible, make sure you look to see what part of the book of Job that verse is coming from. All right? Uh, because if you're quoting something that Eliphaz says, um, it is possible that on the basis of other scripture, Eliphaz could have said something that is theologically true. He says some things, each of these friends say some things within their speeches that are theologically true, demonstrably true from other parts of the Bible. Uh, but you can't look at what these guys are saying and say, well, this is proof of how God is, because they are presented to us here in the book of Job as, uh, as unfaithful guides, as, as miserable comforters. Uh, so then you, then you get Job speaking in his defense, and Job um, 
he gets to chapter 31 and he gets down to the idea of the, even the secrets of his heart. He says, uh, he's saying, you have accused me of wrongdoing. You've said that I must be hiding something. There must be some way in which I have not cared for the widow and the fatherless. There must be some way in which I have denied bread to the poor. But he says, even in, in 31.1, I have, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then should I gaze at a virgin? He's saying, look, I, I try to be pure before the Lord to the point that I don't even let myself lust after women like all of these men around me do. And that's a secret thing of the heart. And, and I'm even trying to be just and to follow after the Lord in those things. He, he goes on and he talks more and more throughout this, uh, this chapter about you know, all of these potential secret sins. And he's saying, I just don't have them. I just don't have them and I don't know why this is happening. Then you get to chapter 32, and a fourth man comes and speaks. Well, I should say a fifth man, because you've got the three friends, Job, and now you've got Elihu, starting in chapter 32. Now, there's different opinions about Elihu. Uh, different people will, will look at that and say, well, maybe he's just a, a, an unwise friend, a miserable counselor like the others. Um, I tend to think that Elihu is the rightest human speaker in this book. Um, now, I, he, he doesn't compare to the speech that God is about to give. Okay, um, But Elihu, uh, let, me, let me tell you why I, I think that. Uh, it's because later, um, when, when God uh, begins to restore Job in chapter 42, verse 7, uh, it, it says uh, that the Lord said to, to Job, or excuse me, the Lord said to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what was right as my servant Job has. Okay, So God's going to declare, Job spoke what was right. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not speak what was right. And for some reason, it doesn't say anything at all about Elihu. <laughs> okay? Um, so the fact that he skips Elihu makes me think Elihu is more reliable than Job's other three friends. Um, but also because in, when it's introduced in chapter 32, it says, These three men uh, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. You hear that? It says Job justified himself rather than God, which sounds pretty bad. And still also keep in mind that God said in chapter 42, verse 7, that Job had spoken what was right. So we got, we're going to have to figure out a way to put all that together here in a second. But Elihu's big point is, don't look and see, um, what did I do to deserve this suffering? He's, his big point is, instead, maybe God's suffering is for the purpose in your life of discipline in order to refine you and to grow you in godliness. So an example of this, probably the, the clearest two verses that you can go to and see that uh, are in chapter 33, verses 29 and 30. He says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. 
All right. Now I think I think Elihu is on to something true there, and something that that you see um, elsewhere in the scriptures about how God refines us uh, as with fire, as as with um, like, like silver, and removing the dross from the silver, um, as. Uh, as it says in Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Well, how does he conform us to the image of his Son? Well, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. Okay? So, if you want, from the book of Job, an answer that has to do with you, personally, about your suffering, this is the closest you're going to get. Okay? This is the closest you're going to get, is the idea uh, that God would do this in order to bring about the light of life in your eyes, in order to, uh, to bring you through a trial, so that you would be more in the image of Christ on the other side of it. But that's not the point of the book of Job. All right? The point of the book of Job uh, starts in chapter 38 when God starts speaking. Okay? Uh, it says this, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, I don't know what that looked like. Uh, I, I don't know if there was a big cloud spinning over his head. I don't know if there was a tornado. Um, I don't know how, it, but it just says there was a whirlwind, and the Lord was speaking to Job. And he says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone? All right. Now, he, he goes on. God begins in chapter 38 and continues for that entire chapter just describing um, these, these wonders of the created order and these wonders of the created world. And he's saying to Job... You've had all of your, your speeches, you've had your conversation with your friends, and you're, you're, you've got a pretty small focus here, Job. You're, you're focusing on, why is this happening to me? You're focusing on, why in myself, what is it about my life that could possibly be the reason for this? And God is getting across to Job, why do you think that my reasons have to do with your life? You see this? God has much, much more going on with himself and his creation of which Job and you and I are a part. He has a lot more going on than our individual lives. What this reminds me of is, is what it says in Jeremiah. Uh, is, a God, is God a God who is nearby and not a God far off? Now, usually we want to focus the other way. We want to say, okay, we know that God is in heaven, but I also want to know that he is near. That's a good thing to know. But God would also balance this out the other way. When we start to think, 
my personal relationship with God must be the focus of all of God's attention. And whatever happens to me must just be between me and God. God would have us to get a bigger view and a smaller view of ourselves and a bigger view of Him to see this is not just about me. Um, so, so God goes on and He, he speaks of this uh, in, in terms of His laying the foundation of, of the earth, in terms of His control over the weather, uh, in terms of his, uh, his placing the stars in the sky. I mean, think about that. I mean, what, what's going on? The, the nearest star system to ours is, is I want to say, four or five light years away, which doesn't sound like many light years, but four or five years at the speed of light, that's a long way off. And God is upholding it right now. And, and then you think about all of these galaxies that are so far away, and Every one of those, those galaxies is made up of these millions, billions of stars. There's a lot of planets around those stars. And you know what's happening on all of those planets all the time? Beautiful sunrises and beautiful sunsets, constantly. You know, there's, even here on Earth, there's always a sunrise happening somewhere. And there's always a sunset happening somewhere. And, and you just see one that just happens to come across our sky... And we as Christians are reminded of the glory of God because that's why God set that up. Well, he's doing that across the universe. And if we start to think to ourselves, well, what, what he is doing on that planet um, a thousand light years from here must be about me and my relationship with him. No. <laughs> it's declaring the glory of God. And how do we fit into this? We fit into this for the purposes that God has, which is for His glory. And the purposes of God's glory don't fit neatly in our lives in such a way as to say, be a good person and you'll get good things, be a bad person and you'll get bad things. What an incredibly simple way of looking at life and how small of a view of God that is. That's what God is getting across here. And then he goes on in chapter 39 and he says, look at the mountain goats. Look at the wild donkey. Look at the wild ox. Look at the ostrich. Look at the horse. He starts talking about just all of these creatures. And then in chapter 40, Job speaks up for about three verses, two verses. Here's what it says. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay, verse 4, Job is beginning to get it. Okay, Job is right. Compared to God, even though he is a big deal, or was a big deal when he had those thousands of livestock, among people, he was a big deal. He's beginning to realize, in God's grand scheme of things, I am of small account. I'm a lightweight. doesn't mean that he doesn't matter to God, but he's not the center of God's universe. And neither am I, and neither are you. And uh, he says, he says I, I'm putting my hand over my mouth, and, but that doesn't stop God from going on. God goes on, and he challenges Job more, speaks out of the whirlwind more. 
and he, he uh, um, starts talking about this creature, Behemoth. Uh, might be a hippopotamus he's talking about, we don't know. And then he, he starts talking in chapter 41 about this creature, Leviathan. Might be a crocodile, we don't know. But uh, regardless of what, what these creatures are, he's saying, you don't, you know, whether we're talking about the Pleiades in the sky or whether we're talking about the foundations of the earth, thousands of miles under your feet, or whether we're talking about that weird creature over there, um, you need to know that I have more that I am doing than just what you see in, in your life. Um, here's Job's final recorded words in chapter 42. Job says, uh, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I should have read you that verse before we even started, okay? Because so, so often, when we read the opening verses of Job, where it speaks of him as a man who is upright and blameless, um, we get this impression in our minds that he is a man who has nothing to repent of. And then we skip over that last verse. Uh, I, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. It strikes me, those are the last words of Job that are recorded for us in the Bible. That seems kind of important. And, and I've always wondered, uh, you know, from the, the first time that I read through this book for myself years ago, I wondered, what is he repenting of? And I think we need to, to see this. Um, well, let me just ask you, what is he repenting of? What's that? Thinking of yourself always thinking about him and not God. Yeah, self-centeredness. Yeah, having too big of a view of himself yeah. and the world and his importance. Mm-hmm. I think that is exactly right. Thinking of himself so. more righteous than God? More, more fair than God? That's possible. That's possible. It says that he justified himself rather than God back in, in chapter 33. Um, but I think the, the big point here is that even though Job is not going to uh, find something in his life that's like a secret hidden sin, um, that his friends are going to say, well, this is what it's all about. Um, the point that he was, the point is, in his being so focused just on searching himself, this was this, what the Puritans would sometimes call a morbid introspection. Um, that he was so concerned with himself and his own life that he wasn't looking to see, hey, maybe God has something bigger than me and my life going on. Maybe there are reasons for this that have nothing to do with me, but that God is ultimately going to use for my good and his glory anyway. And as those who got to see the beginning of this book um, and, and have information that Job didn't have, we know that that's the case. That what God was doing is God was demonstrating to the heavenly beings his own glory in his 
per, per, perseverance and preservation of Job. And, and so as God took him through this, it wasn't a punishment on Job's sins. It was, it was a demonstration of the glory of God to, to the angels and even to Satan. And then, uh, so, so what Job is repenting of here, I think, is, is exactly what he said uh, back in those couple of verses where he spoke in chapter 40. Behold, I am of small account. Um, and he's saying, I spoke of what I did not understand. He's saying, I repent of considering myself big. And uh, I, I consider you, God, to be the one who knows, who has the knowledge over this. Uh, even as I've been trying so hard for this whole book to, to search and to figure it out. So, um, so that's what you have going on. After that, uh, it says, The Lord had spoken these words to Job, and the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. All right, and then God, um, it, it, it's amazing to me, a few verses after that, Job does not write off his miserable comforter friends. Uh, he doesn't throw them out. He doesn't get rid of them. He forgives them. He prays to God to forgive them. And they seem to continue to be his friends in his life. Probably pretty embarrassed about the stuff that they said after that. All right. Um, God restores his fortunes. He gets back um, double the wealth in livestock that he had before and uh, the same number of children that he had before. Some people think that that's a little bit of a, uh, a forward hint at the resurrection, just like when he says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's got um, children raised up exactly in the place of the children that he had lost. Um, and it says he lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. Uh, and Job died an old man full of days. All right. Um, a few few things just to uh, to take out of this. One is um, Jesus suffers. Jesus suffered, I should say, for us, uh, and it wasn't because of anything that that was in Himself. It was because of God's plan, and it was voluntarily. It was part of His own plan as God, and uh, and He came, uh, and He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He did that for us. You just need to know if Jesus suffered, it means it ought to be obvious to us as Christians that not every instance of suffering is a tit-for-tat karma kind of thing. Okay. Um, when something bad happens to someone, don't use the word karma. Okay. That, that is a pagan wrong concept. All right. Um, that's, you can almost imagine the, the, uh, the mockers in front of the cross of Jesus yelling out, Karma. Right? But that wasn't what it was. And, uh, and that's, that's not what we, we look at and see in people's lives when they're suffering or in our own lives either. Uh, it says in Acts 4, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Right? It was because of God's plan, and His plan was to use that for His glory and to, uh, to, to redeem a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. Um, 
in, in Ephesians 3.10, it says, here's something that God is doing with you, believer. If you're a believer in Christ, it says, uh, part of God's purposes are so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It kind of reminds me of the first couple of chapters of Job, doesn't it? The sons of God coming uh, and gathering in heaven and, and God saying, consider my servant Job. Um, the things that we are doing right now, uh, God has an interest in for His glory. Uh, the angels have an interest in for God's glory. The fallen angels have an interest in it to try to disprove God's glory as they watch you. And in all of this, God has greater purposes. So that's one thing to think about, even when you suffer, is, hey, God had heavenly, God-glorifying purposes in front of the angels to demonstrate in Job's life, and he does for me, too. Uh, it says so in Ephesians 3.10. Or in, in Luke 22.31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Right? So, um, as we are facing the different things in our lives, uh, it, it, God has heavenly purposes. Uh, another thing to know is that Job longed for a mediator. I, I know that what's, uh, what's happening right now uh, with you guys, with the, the Nancy Guthrie study, is you don't want to just look at these Old Testament books, you want to see Christ in them, because he himself has said that wherever you look in the Scripture, you're going to see Jesus. Um, example of that, Job 9, 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to, uh, come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job is saying, I long for a mediator. I long for an arbiter between myself and God. Uh, and God has given that, which is uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. We know that Job uh, trusted in Christ as his Redeemer, even though he didn't know the name Jesus yet. He didn't know how all of this would come about yet. But he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And this theme that you come across throughout the Scriptures is just so plain and bold in the book of Job. This theme of those who serve God being brought low in their service to the Lord in order that God can then highly exalt them. What that is, it's a prefiguring of the death and resurrection of Christ himself. As you see, Job brought low and then brought high. Uh, the way that Jesus connected that and many others in the, the Old Testament who were brought low and then brought high, uh, is he says, these, he says to his disciples, Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The way that that's played out is, as uh, Jesus had, had told uh, his disciples, this is what must happen. He, he said, um, he, said um, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him like Eliphaz, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned back and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. 
And he said to us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We, we have that theme throughout the Scriptures, being brought low, being brought high, because it points us to Jesus, who was brought low in the ultimate form, death on a cross for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, and then was raised in victory as our Lord. Um, I'll just I'll leave you with this one, one last passage in, in Romans 8, uh, verses 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we are victorious and blessed. Right? No, that's not what it says. Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. John Piper has said, uh, I've heard him say it a couple of times, that God is always doing 10,000 things, and you might be aware of three of them. You see that so clearly in the book of Job. And so when we face things and go through things and difficulties, or we don't know why God is letting something happen, just keep that in mind. God is so much bigger than us. He's so much bigger than what he allows us to see and to know. He has his purposes. He is good. And for us who trust in Christ, for us who love God and are called according to His purpose, He causes all things, including terrible things, to work together for our good so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And we know in all of this that that those sufferings at this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. All right. Um, I don't know how long I was supposed to go, but that was probably longer. Um, but let me just pray for us. Uh, I don't know. Should should do we want to do questions or? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we oh. Questions. Okay. No, we'll do questions first and then prayer. Yeah. Yeah. I have a comment about uh-huh. the ending of Job. Uh-huh. Change his whole perspective on life. Mm-hmm. So, um, repenting and God blessed him with his children and wealth again. That he didn't um, stay to the norm because in those days women didn't inherit, um, didn't inherit any inheritance from their family. Mm-hmm. He gave uh, inheritance to his daughters. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, he truly looked a different perspective. That's true. That's yeah. That's that's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. When you were you mentioned something about morbid into introspection, right? Yeah. yeah. So what is the right balance? Mm-hmm. Because to me, Reformed theology is all about morbid introspection because you're constantly examining yourself, right? So hmm. where is the balance where you say, okay, yes, I'm a sinful, wretched sinner, and and like Christ died for me, but if you continue to introspect, you kind of feel bad and like sad and I don't know it's just it's not really helpful mentally for some people to constantly be thinking about how bad how bad they are mm-hmm. like what is the right balance like how 
what is good introspection and what's morbid introspection? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm confused. I don't understand what you mean by saying that, that Reformed theology because is all about morbid we, introspection. We're constantly examining ourselves against the scripture. Okay. So that creates some sort of like focusing on my own life and if I'm living up to the standard mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about if I'm performing well, if, if my thoughts mm -hmm. or, or what I'm watching, what I'm listening to it. So that's morbid <laughs> introspection because you're constantly seeing how, you know, if you're reading up to that standard that God has put in the Bible. Mm. And to me, that's morbid introspection. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, cer it certainly can be, uh, especially if you don't have a proper distinction in your mind between the law and the gospel. Um, so I think that, that that's, that's a very, very essential part of Reformed theology that you have to keep in mind when you're doing, um, uh, when, when you are considering your own soul and uh, examining yourself. Um, when, when we examine ourselves, essentially what we're, what we're doing is we, um, especially when we're, we're thinking of our behavior, what we're doing is we're considering um, how we stand against the law of God. 100% of the time, that will indict us and show us our sin. Right. Um, so if you don't understand that that has to do with the law and then turn to the gospel, you will come away despairing uh, and, and hopeless. Um, so, so what we do is we see, what, what, what we should do is we, we should see, okay, here is where I am falling short of the glory of God. Um, but the point of my falling short of the glory of God is not to drive me to despair. That, that would be a works-based gospel. Um, so what it want, I want to do is I want to be driven to the good news, which has nothing to do with what I do. Uh, it has to do with what God has done for me. So, so the law says, do this and live. And that's why the law kills us, is because we don't do that. Yeah. Um, the gospel says, here is what God has done for you in Christ. Receive it as a free gift and live. Um, so so when, we, when we look in ourselves, um, we, we, so, so you, you can think of it like this, all right? So, so as you, uh, as you um, examine yourself, which the Bible does say, examine yourself. Um, and it says to read the Bible, as James says, like a mirror on our own soul, not to walk away as those who are hearers and not doers. We, we want to do that. Um, but I think John Calvin's three, three categories of the uses of the law are really helpful there. Um, so as Christians, uh, when, when we come and we see, here is how I don't stack up to the commands of God, um, we want to go with the first use of the law. He calls it the pedagogical use of the law, or the teaching use of the law, which is that it needs to show us that we are in need of Christ in order to turn us to the gospel, in order to turn us to dependence on the righteousness of Jesus instead of the righteousness of ourselves. Um, we want to then also go on to... Um, oh, I can't remember if it's this. <laughs> I think it's the second use of the law. Maybe it's the third. Um, but this, this, uh, this use of the law that has to do with um, seeking to, to conform ourselves to, um, to what God has said. We, we want to do that. That's part of why God has given us those things is so that we would um, be sanctified. And, and that is good um, as long as we are doing that with the first use, too, to turn to Christ, to trust in his righteousness, not in our righteousness. Um, so even the, the scripture in... Um, I think it's 2 Corinthians where it says to, to examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. 
Um, he doesn't say, uh, examine yourself to see how much you are conformed to the image of Christ, and here is the amount to which you must be conformed to the image of Christ to be a child of God. He says, examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. So the point of that self-examination is not, I must meet this level of holiness or I'm a lost person. Um, the point of that self-examination is to see, is Christ in me? The point is not ultimately me, even when I'm looking inward. The point is Christ. Um, another, another example of that would be in, in Matthew 7, when, when Jesus um, speaks to those who, um, who will be lost, who thought that they weren't lost. They had done introspection, and they had come away confident from their introspection because they said, well, when I look in myself, I see that I have prophesied in Jesus' name. I have cast out many demons in Jesus' name. Uh, I've done these mighty works in Jesus' name. And so that's what they present to Jesus. Here is the reason why you should accept me into heaven is because of me. Um, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, so that introspection, even, even if it is a, ultimately a self-focus, then even if you come away from it feeling good, um, you could be a lost person. So, so I, I, what we need to do as, and, and I, yeah, I just, I, I take issue with the idea that Reformed theology is about morbid introspection. I, I think Reformed theology is about recognizing our failure to uphold the law so that we will be driven to depend on the gospel instead of depending on what's in us, to depend on what's in Christ instead, okay. if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. I yeah. think. And this is why I go back to the gospel, but... Sometimes I get stuck in that specific issue that I cannot move on, and I'm like, oh, let me stop reading the Bible. Let me just—I don't want to bring more condemnation to my life. I, you know, yeah. to me, that's sometimes I struggle with that. Yeah. Um, but let me. Yeah. Do we bring more condemnation to our life if we're believers? No. Well, I'm just there is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's this idea that you know if you continue to the more knowledge you have, the more responsible you're going to be for that knowledge, right? So that's why some, there's certain topics that I would rather not listen to because I don't want to be convicted, convicted, and that's I'm not reading this. I'm not reading about responsibility. Yeah. But it, it, it is sometimes a struggle um, for me, anyway. Uh, and I do think about the gospel, and, and I go back to in all the promises of God. Um, but I like how you explained Second uh, Corinthians. You said. Um, oh, I'm. I've. Crisis in you. I, I like when you explained that. Yeah, I, I might. It might be. I think it's Second Corinthians. Just read the whole book. <laughs> yeah, but no, I guess a, a good way to put it would be: it's morbid introspection when the focus is ultimately yourself. Yes, and it is good introspection when it's to point you to Jesus. When you're not going to stay on yourself. Um, so, I mean, what what you got in Job there is he's. That's morbid, <laughs> you know, until the end when he realizes, wait, this is not about me. It's about God. Um, yeah. Bible says like we will be judged according to what we've done. 
So I think sometimes we take that as like every single thing we're doing. And I'm a perfectionist to the point where like every single thought, if it's not pleasing to God, I'm like condemning myself for it. So I just constantly feel this burden, like guilty for not doing more or like not doing as good as I can. So like, I know like that's being hard on yourself, but we want to be holy like Jesus is. We want to be perfect because it says to be. So like when we're not, we kind of like put it on ourselves. So we feel really down about it. So I think I know like divine's feeling, you know, like just down because like we want to measure up, but like just again, like you said, putting our focus back on God and who he is. Mm-hmm. That gives us joy because it's not about us anyway. So anyway, thank you for yeah. this message because it was encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And and related to that, Job said that he wished that he had um, this this mediator, this advocate. And and the Bible tells us if any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Mm-hmm. So so that's what we should think of when we are convicted of our sin is, but I have an advocate with the Father, um, who who forgives me in full and cleanses me of all unrighteousness. Okay. Uh, so yeah. I have a question kind of related to, um, you know, some people are inspired, uh, maybe not inspired, like, like I mean, the both of you, right, you, you would strive for um, perfection or to improve, you know, which is not a bad thing. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts, Pastor, on like, uh, let's say, getting inspiration from non-Christian motivational speakers. Like, let's say, uh, let's say Jordan Peterson oh, is one on. that I've heard of, uh-huh. who seems to give very good advice. You know, but um, I guess any any comments? <laughs> no comments. I have never listened to Jordan Peterson, so I I can't comment on him specifically. Um, But uh, I I downloaded one of his podcast episodes one time so that I would listen to it, and I just haven't. But um, no, I mean, I I think as a general principle, there, there is common grace in the world. Not everything that everybody says is mistaken and wrong. Um, but as, as Christians, we also have to be careful not to, um, not to walk after the counsel of the wicked, right? Um, and, and realizing that even those who, who have wise things to say or might be on the right side politically of most issues, um, that if they don't know Christ, um, they are not among the righteous, they are among the wicked. And, uh, and so ultimately, they, they can't be our, our guide. We have to weigh everything against this, the scriptures. And uh, um, if, if there is a lost person who you're consistently listening to and you never find anything wrong with what they say, um, then you probably need to be in the Bible more. <laughs> Even if they're generally right about politics and, and uh, you know, good habit-forming motivational kind of stuff, um, um, you know, if, if, if you can't pick out about somebody uh, where, where, they, <laughs> where they, they're off, then, um, yeah, go to the scripture. One thing so. we have to remember is when we're, when we're praying and we ask for forgiveness for a particular sin, that we know that that sin is going to be forgiven and we have to get it out of our, our head. Mm-hmm. We don't have it anymore. We've given it to him. And he has accepted it. And I think that's a very important thing for all of us to know. 
Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. It's always been kind of difficult for me to reconcile the fact that, you know, like when we look at ourselves without the lens of Jesus and God's eyes, we are we're wretched, we're rotten, you know, we're full of sin and despicable, totally despicable. But yet through the, the eyes of Jesus, he makes us pure and he makes us clean and beautiful and we become God's children. You know, and yet it's so easy still because we're still sinful to get that warped and take it out of perspective and to start to value ourselves as more than we really are worth. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I struggle with that idea, you know, because I, I know that that in God's eyes through Jesus that I am beautiful and precious in his sight, you know, but yet I'm not like uplifted above everybody else or better than everybody else. Yeah. So that I'm still down I should still be down on my knees praising him and thanking him because you know, it's not about me, it's about Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And with, with Job, I mean, God looked upon Job so highly that he's, he's the guy that God brought up in heaven. So have you considered my servant Job? And, and yet also, um, Job needed to have a much smaller view of himself in comparison with God. So it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not an either or. It's not, should I... Um, pound myself into the dirt as worthless or am I God's greatest treasure? Um, it's, we are created in the image of God and beloved by God to a degree that is beyond what... what I mean, we, we, we have to consider the, the height and the breadth and the, the depth and the width of, of the love of God in Christ Jesus toward us. Um, you know, we're redeemed because he loved us while we were still sinners and loved us from before the foundation of the world. And so there's an extreme uh, valuing that God places on us. And we're also really small compared to him. Just one last comment. You know, I'm kind of realizing that uh, some of us came to Christianity with this self-focus, you know, God has a plan for you. You know, Mm -hmm. God loves you, God this, and it's all about you. And then we start reading Job, you know, and we start, I realize, oh my goodness, I mean, you're actually doing something, you know, that is bigger than myself. And depending on how, you know, I I went through a lot of Pentecostal churches, so it's all about you, it's all about your growth, it's all about, you know, like you said, the prosperity gospel. So I'm trying to, I'm beginning to learn that, you know what, God has something a lot bigger than just my tiny little human life. And, and I just have to continue to remind myself because it, it's hard to kind of like detach yourself from what you have been told constantly mm-hmm. and how you grow up. So I, to me, that's a kind of like a challenge to grow and mature spiritually into that area of, okay, it's not about me, it's about God. Yeah, so. and those things, they, they don't... The funny thing is that it doesn't always even have to do with the way that you were raised or the church that you were brought up in. Um, some, sometimes it just has to do with, um, I mean, everybody has to grow in Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of background you came out of. And, and uh, you, you know, you, you realize and things that uh, you just never put together before, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing I like to remember, like, if I'm going through hard things, is that we are just on this big ball that is floating around like this and rotating. So I'd like to just keep that in mind to remember how small I am. Mm. Mm, That's a good point. Well, let me pray for us, and I'll I'll let you guys... uh,
Go. Lord, I thank you that you are so big and uh, perfect and glorious. Uh, God, you are infinite in every way and perfection. And uh, you have created us and all things for your glory. Um, Lord, we thank you for the, the plans that you have that are good, that are glorifying to you. And I thank you that for us who are in Christ, that, that you love us. I thank you that you cause all things to work together for our good and to conform us to the image of Jesus. Lord, we, we don't understand everything that you do, and we see from Job that we don't have to understand everything that you do uh, to trust in you. And so I pray that you would grant uh, our, our trust. Um, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, if there, there are any of these, these uh, ladies here whose faith is not in Jesus, I pray that you would turn them to this Redeemer who lives uh, so that they might also live in glory with Christ. And uh, Lord, for us who, who know Jesus, I pray that you would keep our, our minds set on Christ. Um, Lord, we, we want to be more like Jesus, but Jesus is Jesus. And um, Lord, help us to, to just exalt Christ in our hearts. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.